I can extend my welcome, uh, particularly those who are visiting in light of the uh, Kids Church Open Day. Great to have you with us, and I hope you enjoy uh, your time with us, and I guess seeing a bit of an insight of what it's like uh, to be part of our church. Uh, so my name is Mike, I'm one of the pastors here. Let me pray, and then we'll look at this uh, part of Hebrews. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. Uh, we thank you that you're not some distant, remote God who is uninterested in his creation, who is uninterested in us, but actually you've spoken, and you've spoken for our good and for your glory, and we pray that we might hear your word for our good and for your glory this morning. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as you already know, today we, we come to the final chapter and the final sermon in the book of Hebrews. It's been about 15 weeks or so. I hope you've enjoyed it. But you probably noticed as this uh, last chapter was read out that this final chapter comes with exaltation after exaltation. There's in that list in chapter 13, it's instruction after instruction. It's quite different to the rest of the book so far. And it feels like that kind of conversation you have with a grandparent. You know, you're, you know, you're just about to finish school or you're just about to get married or perhaps the, the grandparent's just about to pass from this life in their old age and they've, they've got these pearls of wisdom to share with you. They sit you down and they talk to you for a while and then they end with these just pearl of wisdom after pearl of wisdom. That's kind of how this chapter feels. But of course, this is much more than wise words of a grandparent. Uh, this is the word of God. And whilst at first glance this chapter comes across like a, like a random collection of instructions, it's actually much more than that. Uh, these pearls of wisdom are exhaust or exhortations or instructions for godly living, for, for right living. And it flows from last week because if you remember the end of chapter 12 last week and how that finished, it finished by reminding us that if, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you're a Christian, then you're part of the heavenly Jerusalem. And because of that, what you're to do now is to live in thankfulness and in praise and service of God. And what chapter 13 does is it instructs us on what that looks like. What does it look like to live in service of God, to live in thankfulness to Him? And uh, today I'm going to do something a little bit different to normal. I'm going to go uh, all American on you. You know, how, uh, you know how the Americans like to give you 10 points on how to be the best, you know, whatever it might be, or they give you, you know, the 10 steps to the best cakes, that sort of thing. Uh, I'm obviously a southerner today. Uh, but that, that's what chapter 13 does. It's like Point after point, point after point. So what I'm going to do today is something different. I'm going to give you eight points. I never give you eight points. Please don't worry. They're not as long as the usual three points. But eight points, eight pearls of wisdom from God's word. That's how we're going to look at this chapter. And as we look at each one, we'll see that each point is not isolated from the rest of this letter. It actually fits with the things we've seen so far. So we're going to jump straight in because there's eight points. Uh, have your outline there. Make sure you've got a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you'll be flying blind. So can I encourage you to have a Bible? If you'd like one, just stick your hand up and someone can bring one to you. But it'll be really helpful if you've got uh, a Bible there in front of you. But point one, we'll jump straight in. Point one, instruction number one, and then have a look at verse one. It starts like this. Let brotherly and sisterly love continue. That's point one. And, and we know by now that this familiar language has been there since the beginning of this letter. Remember, the, the readers of this letter, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, remember that marvelous verse back in chapter 2, verse 11, where Jesus himself, uh, 
is not ashamed to call believers his brothers. Just imagine how amazing that is, that the, the, the Son of God, God the Son, calls us brothers and sisters because we have the same Heavenly Father. And so the instruction here is to continue in brotherly and sisterly love. This is an encouragement to keep going together as the family of God. And you know the old saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family? Well, that's kind of true uh, when we think about our church family. In many ways, we haven't chosen each other. Now, of course, if we got to choose, we'd all choose each other because we're all such lovely people. But, uh, but what makes the church so distinctive compared to any other kind of group that might gather together is that it's, di- it's a diverse mix. We wouldn't choose each other. It just wouldn't happen normally. But that's how the church family works. In Christ, in Jesus, we are a family. And being a family, we're to love each other. And it's actually what made Christians distinctive from the very beginning. Uh, so, so, so Tertullian, he was a, a church father uh, from the second century. So this is almost 2,000 years ago. And he wrote this as the, the kind of surrounding society looked on at Christians. You see, he wrote this. He said, look, the pagans say, as in the non-Christians around them say, look, look how the Christians love each other. For the pagans themselves hate one another. And look at how they're ready, the Christians, to die for each other. For the pagans are readier to kill each other. And so just as people looked around at that early society, they saw that the Christians were different because they loved each other. They were a family who loved one another. So that's point one. Let brotherly love continue. Point two and verse two. Have a look at verse two now. Verse two. Don't neglect to show hospitality for by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. And that word there, hospitality, is literally love of strangers. So it's let brotherly love continue and don't neglect to love strangers. And we need to understand this in its first century context. Uh, what's in view here is being hospitable or, or a love of strangers towards those outside the immediate Christian community. So what would have happened back then is if there was a fellow Christian who was on their travels and they were to turn up to your town, well, then you were to take them in. You were to welcome them. You were to care for them. You were to show them love. And this would have been especially true for missionaries and traveling leaders like the person who wrote this letter. You see, if the, if the writer of Hebrews turned up in town, well, then what you would do is you would, you would take him in. And he was reliant on your hospitality to be cared for. Uh, they didn't have hotels. They didn't have uh, you know, motels like we do today as much. So that's what's going on here in, in showing love to strangers. And in verse 2, we get that really intriguing verse about angels, which is always a strange one for us. But at one level, that verse shouldn't shock us as much as it does. See, if you're a Christian, you believe in angels. If you're a Christian, you believe in demons. If you're a Christian, you believe in, in, in the spiritual realm. These are not odd things to us. We believe in these things. But this verse is, is most likely pointing back to that story of Abraham back in Genesis uh, 18. And you might remember it. Abraham, he welcomed some strangers and then they turned out to be angels. So that's probably what it's referring to. So don't take this as a command as, uh, okay, I've got to invite as many strangers into my home as I can because the more I invite, some of them might be angels and that might be pretty cool. That's not what's going on here. That's not the point. But again, this instruction for love of strangers, it's a, it's a Christian virtue. 
It's one of the things that, that for me personally was a great witness when I first became a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up knowing about Jesus. But when I first came to church in my late kind of teenage years, uh, I was a stranger to that church. And what struck out the most for me was the way that this church, who knew not who I was, welcomed me. And they invited me in for meals and they showed love towards me, even though they had no reason to do that. And so can I implore you, show hospitality, show love to strangers. It will be a blessing to you and to the person you're showing love towards. And it's a great encouragement that I know that that many of us do this. It's such a great joy that when I welcome someone who's new to our church and say, Hi, my name's Mike, nice to meet you, uh, that I quickly find out that, that someone else... Uh, from our church has already invited them over for lunch. Uh, someone else is already trying to care for them. Uh, someone else has already invited them to the life course because the way we do our life course is to show hospitality to the stranger, to the outsider, uh, someone who then can come and, and hear about Jesus. So that's point two. Do not neglect hospitality, love of stranger. It's what Christians do. Point three. Remember the prisoners and the mistreated. Look at verse three. Remember the prisoners, verse 3, as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. And for the first readers of this letter, remember this, this letter is almost 2,000 years old. They were the first ones to read this letter. There's a particular people this was written to. For the first readers of this letter, this was not some hypothetical to do this. Remember chapter 10. Some of them, because they were Christians were put into prison because they followed Jesus. Uh, remember chapter 10 again. Some of them were mistreated. They had their possessions confiscated, even their homes possibly taken away. Why? Because of Jesus. And the appeal here, it's not simply give those Christian prisoners a thought. You know, it's not those who've been mistreated. Just, just think of them and maybe shoot up a prayer to them, even though that is a good thing to pray for them. Did you see what it says in verse 3? It's imagine you yourselves being in prison with them. Imagine you yourselves suffering in your body like them. You see, the remembering here, it's actually to lead to action. So for those who were in prison, it meant go visit them. It meant appeal for their release. It meant, okay, if if the husband has been taken into prison, what about the rest of his family? Care for them because they're left behind. They don't have the breadwinner anymore. Care for them. Uh, For the mistreated, it was actually a willingness to be mistreated alongside them. So because your your brother, sister in Christ has been mistreated because they found out to be a a Christian, don't distance yourself from them. Uh, Don't just try to preserve yourself and and ignore their suffering. And we've spoken about this already in our Hebrew series, but the day will come, and in some ways has already come, where in in our modern Western world, Christians will be mistreated and be put into prison just for being Christians. Uh, Os Guinness is an English uh, Christian social critic and he writes this. He says this. He says, Western society has now entered an ABC moment and anything but Christianity moment. And in many ways, I think that's true. You see, what will you do when snack, when our church here is in the news because one of the pastors has said something? It's not actually that hard to imagine the headlines because you see them already. Uh, you know, bigot, white, male pastor. 
And I don't say Anglo pastor because I'm not Anglo. Josh is an Anglo, so some of us aren't Anglo. But you can imagine a headline, right? Bigot male pastor discriminates against such and such minority group by his outdated and harmful biblical views. That's not too hard to imagine. And imagine that news article online and imagine the comments section after it and the wildfire. You know, how dare they teach that? Uh, how dare they can say such things? Such people should be thrown in prison. How can you teach that? Uh, churches in our country have already been in the paper for just teaching things from the Bible and have suffered because of it. You see, when you're at work and someone says, hold on, that church that's in the paper, in the news, isn't that your church? Don't you go to St. George North Anglican? See, what will you say in that point? Will you be mistreated along with those mistreated? Or what if one amongst us, because they hold to the Bible's teachings, they lose their job, or they're thrown into prison because of some anti-discrimination law, because in their job they wanted to hold to what the Bible says, will we be with them? Will we support them? Will we provide for their physical and their emotional needs? Will we give financially? Because perhaps they've lost their job, and they don't have a, they don't have a living anymore. Because they stuck with Jesus. Of course, our prayer is that such things will never happen in our time, but history tells us that this has happened over and over again. It happened for the first readers of this letter. And of course, outside our Western context, this is the reality for so many people. Uh, I must admit, I, I felt a little bit rebuked about this particular instruction during the week. Remember the prisoners, remember the, the, the mistreated amongst the Christians. Because there are, there are literally hundreds of millions of Christians around our world, outside our Western context, all of them who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, who because they live for Jesus, they're suffering. Uh, physically, uh, financially, and many of them imprisonment, just because they're Christians. And I don't think this passage is intended to make us feel the, the personal burden of worldwide Christian persecution, I don't think that's what this is saying. I think we do have a duty to it locally amongst ourselves and our people. But this verse did make me think of organizations like uh, Anglican Aid or Open Doors, if, if you've ever heard of Open Doors. And it made me wonder if, you know, if I personally should do more about remembering the prisoners, the mistreated brothers and sisters in Christ, simply because they're following Jesus. And as I actually typed out this line in my sermon, I, I, I did something about it. I went on Anglican Aid and, and uh, supported them. See, remember the Christian prisoners and the mistreated. That's point three. Point four, in verse four, marriage and sexual immorality. Have a look, verse four. It says this, Marriage must be respected by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. And I need to say up front, uh, I can't say everything there is to say about marriage. I know this is a contentious issue amongst our world in many ways. Uh, but I just want to say what the Bible says here. There's a principle that's being said here. I can't follow out all the implications. And this flow, follows from what we saw last week. Do you remember last week? The instruction was pursue holiness. Uh, if the readers of this letter were to be like, like God who is holy and faithful like God is holy, then marriage has to be respected by all. And that's the marrieds and the unmarrieds. You see, the married people were to be faithful. Faithful to their marriage partner and not be an adulterer. And the, the unmarried person, they were to respect the God-given institution of marriage and not be sexually immoral. Uh, the Holman translation that we've got here lets us down a little bit. It's not the immoral person that it's in view, but the sexually immoral person. 
Uh, And in case we're ever in doubt of how serious this instruction is, look at the end of verse 4. End of verse 4, it says, God will judge those who are sexually immoral and adulterous. And this is what we must remember with sexual sins like this. To, to, To live as an adulterer or in sexual sin is actually to choose personal gratification above your responsibility to God. See, God calls us to respect and honor his institute of marriage. He says, one man, one woman, lifelong. Uh, Too often nowadays, marriage, it's seen as a a temporal arrangement. It's a a thing you do as a time, but when it doesn't suit you anymore, end it. But actually, in God's good design, he designed marriage to be lifelong. Uh, He he designed it uh, to be upheld for the good of that marriage. He designed it to be upheld for the good of the children in that marriage. He designed it to be upheld for the good of the society at large. And again, I know it's not popular to say, and I know that there's, there's specifics in everyone's circumstances where sometimes holding that marriage together is not good. I know that. But actually, God's design is to do all you can to respect that marriage institution. And it's good for everyone, for the society, for the family, for the man, for the woman. But it's not only to choose personal gratification above your responsibility to God, but actually above your responsibility to love other people. Again, it's, it's pretty easy to see. To be in an adulterous relationship is to cause all sorts of hurts upon other people. That adulterous relationship, it hurts people if you're in that. Uh, to be sexually active with someone who's not yet your husband, not yet your wife, well, for one, God says, no, no, keep sexual activity for marriage. That's what's best. But two, if you're not married to that person, that, that's somebody else's wife. That's somebody else's husband. Uh, and you yourself, if you're not yet married, well, you're supposed to be kept as someone else's wife, someone else's husband. God says, trust us in this, that it's good. Again, much more to say on that. I know it's contentious. If you've got more questions, if, you, if there's things you want to talk about, please talk to me afterwards. We, we can't look at all of it now. I've spoken in general. But nevertheless, the principle here is, and what, what the writer of Hebrews was saying to that church is, respect the marriage institution. It's a good thing. But point five, the love of money. Have a look from verse five. Verse five, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have, for God himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And again, this was most likely a live issue for the first hearers of this letter. We know their possessions had been taken away. We know their homes had perhaps been taken away and confiscated back in chapter 10. And it could have been that their jobs and their livelihoods were also tied up with their old Jewish community. So they're not, they're not part of that community anymore. And so perhaps for them, the business that they had, it was reliant on their old Jewish community to make their business function. And perhaps it was that their jobs were tied up with their old Jewish communities. But now that they've become Christians, well, maybe their jobs were insecure. Maybe because they've become Christians that, that their old communities had rejected them and so they'd lose their jobs and lose their livelihoods. And in any of those scenarios, just imagine the temptation at that point to say, oh, actually, no, I'm not with Jesus because you didn't want to lose your job or you didn't want to lose your customers in your business. Uh, Imagine the temptation to choose the path of money and to go back to the old life, to keep your job and to keep your profitable business because you didn't want to lose that income. But the encouragement here was to remember who you belong to. 
that you're God's. See, the quote in verse 5, I will never leave you or forsake you, is actually a quote from uh, back in Deuteronomy 31. And at that time in Israel's history, and we saw it with all the, uh, all the pictures up on, uh, on the uh, stage before, but at that time in Israel's history, they, they had no land, the people of God. Uh, they'd been in the wilderness for 40 years, if you remember. So they'd been wandering around with no permanent home. Uh, Moses, who was the great leader at that time, he was just about to die. Everything looked hopeless. Uh, yet they were to be content and find their satisfaction in belonging to God. See, that's the point there of verse 6 as well, the quote from the Psalms. When you remember that you are God's, well, you need not be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of what lies ahead. You don't need to fear what mankind can do to you because the Lord is your helper. And so there are two things being said here. For one, don't let your love of money drive your decision-making. But for two, remember you belong to God. And because you belong to Him, be satisfied with what you have in Him. You've got all that matters ultimately in Him. You're part of the heavenly Jerusalem in belonging to God. Uh, I read of a good example of this during the week. Uh, there's a very able uh, Christian brother who'd made the rank of colonel in the Australian army. If you know anything about the ranks in the army, colonel's quite high. It's quite up there. And if you're a colonel, it means basically you're in charge of about 1,500 soldiers, so big responsibility. But this particular Christian brother, rather than enjoying that status... And the pay that came along with being colonel, what he decided to do was become an, uh, an army chaplain instead. And because he became a chaplain, he had to take a $60,000 a year pay cut, which $60,000 a year, that's more than what some of us would earn a year. That was just his pay cut uh, to then become a chaplain instead of keep being a colonel. And then he had to be demoted down to captain, which is about three steps below colonel. You see, and there was someone who was free of the love of money. See, there was someone who was satisfied with what they had in Jesus in actually having a status in Christ uh, rather than finding his identity and his status in being the colonel. And he gave those things up because he wanted to live for Jesus, not for the love of money. But we're up to point six now. And point six will cover verses seven to 15. And we won't, able, won't be able to cover all the detail. But I've called point six, remember God's word and don't be led astray. Because in this point, there's a do and there's a do not. And now let me show you what I mean. Again, you've got to have your Bibles here because it'll get a bit tricky. So verse 7, have a look at verse 7. What are the readers told to do? Verse 7, they are to remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. That is, they're to remember that time when the gospel of the Lord Jesus first came to them and to imitate the faith of those first leaders who brought them that gospel because verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That is, Jesus never changes. And if Jesus never changes, the gospel message you hear, it doesn't change. There is no new message to be heard. It stays the same. And so verse 9, look at verse 9. This is the do not. Verse 9, what are they not to do? They are not to be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. And so the flow is, remember the gospel that came to you at first. Remember the leaders who brought you the message about Jesus. Remember Jesus never changes. So that gospel message never changes. And so therefore, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings that come. 
And what the rest of the verses do there from the middle of verse 9 is contrast one particular kind of strange teaching which added Jewish traditions to the gospel with the teaching of the gospel of grace that they received. Uh, so let me show you what I mean. Look, look quickly with me. So there's the Jewish traditions of food in verse 9. That's the Old Testament traditions. In verse 10, there's the tabernacle that's mentioned. Again, Jewish traditions. Then there's the enduring city here, which is the earthly Jerusalem in verse 14. All those are the Old Testament Jewish traditions. And that's contrasted with the way of grace, verse 9. And the new altar, verse 10. Not of Old Testament animal sacrifices, but of Jesus' sacrifice, verse 12. And the city, it's not a city that's here. It's not, a, it's not an earthly city like Jerusalem, but it's the city that is to come. It's the heavenly city, verse 14. And the point of the contrast there is to remind the, leader, the readers that the way of Jesus is better. It's what we've seen throughout this letter the whole time. Whatever alternate way of life you can think of, if you understand Jesus, you realize Jesus is better. It's what we've seen over and over again. So the point in this uh, uh, verse is, don't be led astray by new and strange teaching. You've got everything you need in Jesus. And for those of you uh, who know about this, isn't this so relevant given what we, ha- uh, what we heard about um, GAFCON and uh, the Anglican Church of Australia during the week? Uh, you should have got a, an email explaining what has happened, and there's a good chance you've seen it in the news, particularly if you read the Sydney Morning Herald. You probably saw it in the news. If you read the Australian, you probably didn't see it because the Australian doesn't care about such things. But uh, there have been some who have brought in various kinds of strange teaching into the church. Uh, teachings that seek to be more about the culture of our day and worse, teachings that declare to, to say things that are good which the Bible declares is sin. But the point is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. The gospel does not change. It does not shift with the culture of our day. It does not become more palatable to suit how our world chops and changes every decade or two. No, no, remember God's word. It stays the same and don't be led astray. Again, much more to say from those verses. Uh, and you can look at those more in your gospel teams. But we're up to point seven now. Two points left, and we'll do point seven very quickly. So look at verse uh, 16. Verse 16 and point seven. Have a look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And this one uh, belongs with the verse, uh, the verse that goes before, because part of the contrast in the last section was to say... The Christian does offer sacrifice. And it's, it's not the sacrifice of Old Testament animals, and it's not a, a sacrifice to appease God in light of our sin, but it is a sacrifice of praise to God, verse 15, as those who've been saved through Jesus. And verse 16, it tells us what that looks like. It's to do good. That's what pleases God, to do good, to do God's good. And it's to share what we have. And again, that's not removed from the life circumstances of the first readers. Some of them would have been poor. They would have needed others to share with them. Some of them, as we know, have lost their homes or their jobs. So sharing what you have was hugely important. But I want to jump to point eight now. Point eight, obey your leaders and submit to them. So look from verse 17. Obey your leaders 
and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And uh, I realize as we come to this point that there's um, perhaps some bias in me speaking on this particular point. Uh, I'm making this point as someone who is a leader in God's church. But as I thought about this, I'm actually unashamed to do this. This is what God's word says. See, the means by which God grows his people and sustains his people and sustains his church is through the leaders of the church. That's how God has made things to work. And of course, God sustains his church through all of us. We saw that so much last week. Uh, last week was, was all about how all of us, uh, those who belong to Jesus and live for Christ, we, we strengthen each other to keep going in the Christian life. All, the, the emphasis last week was how we're all responsible. But the, the emphasis this week in this point is that there's a special responsibility given to leaders. You see, the reason the writer of Hebrews, as a leader himself, wrote this letter in the first place is because, verse 17, he was keeping watch over the souls of those people. And so the reason the writer of this letter wrote such a challenging letter, and it's been hard in lots of ways for those who have been here the last 15 weeks, the reason he wrote such a challenging letter and the reason he kept pointing the people of the church to keep looking to Jesus over and over again is because he was responsible in caring for their souls. He was responsible along with the other leaders who were in that church. And notice the instruction there. It's not simply listen to your leaders. It's obey them and submit to them. And I know that that is so very un-Australian to obey and to submit. And I know that they can be abused, and we've seen that sadly abused by wicked leaders in the history of the church over and over again. But it is right to obey and submit to godly leaders. Uh, to those, if you look back at verse 7, whom because of the outcome of their godly lives and their teaching, they're worthy of being submitted to and listened to and obeyed. And if you look again at verse 17, just look again at verse 17. The leader is to lead as one who will give account to God himself for how he has led. And again, that's why the writer of Hebrews has said some hard things. Because one, he truly loves his hearers and he wants them to stick with Jesus. But two, that leader will stand before God and God will ask him, how did you go as a leader in the church at caring for those people? At caring for that flock? And God will hold him accountable. You see, it's much easier for the writer of Hebrews to have written a letter that was simply lovely and nice and easy and pleasant and not challenging. But he didn't. Because he loves them. And because he loves God. And even in his talk, I realize, particularly if, uh, if you're someone here for the first time, uh, there's probably things that you're thinking, oh, I don't know what I think about that. Uh, but actually, I... I, as a teacher in the church, say what God's word says because I know I'll stand before God and be accountable. Sometimes we don't like the hard things that are said to us, but the reason leaders say hard things to the flock is because we will stand accountable to God for how we have helped you to keep living for Jesus. See, please know that the leaders in this church, in your church here, take this seriously. We don't do it perfectly because just like you, we're of the sinful flesh, we make mistakes but we lead as those who will give account to God. 
And because of that, we constantly remind you of Jesus. So the reason from up front, we always say Jesus, 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 and perhaps you're sick about hearing about Jesus, but no, we'll be held accountable. We need to teach about Jesus. The reason we constantly point back to the Word of God, even when it's unpopular, even when it's politically incorrect, even when you cringe at things that might be said from up front, the reason we say it is because we're accountable to God. And though we have tough conversations at times with you, we say it because we love you. Uh, We have those uh, conversations because we're accountable to God. And this is a massive responsibility and weight upon the leaders in your church. Uh, Please know that we feel that weight and show you you should constantly pray for us. Uh, that, That is a good and biblical thing to do. It's what the Hebrews writer asks them to do in verse 18 and 19. Pray for us. To be praying and obeying and submitting to godly leaders makes leading a joy, uh, which is what, again, we see in verse 17. It's profitable for everyone. Godly obedience to godly leaders is a great joy. But there you have it, eight pearls of wisdom from Hebrews 13. There's obviously so much more there that we could dig into. Each point could be its own longer thing. Uh, But I just want to wrap up the series. I hope you've enjoyed, particularly for those who've been here for the last 15 weeks with uh, this series in Hebrews, I hope you've been spurred on. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your time in Hebrews. It's been a hard letter at times. Uh, It's had lots of Old Testament background. Uh, At times, there's been lots of complex ideas to get your head around. But the message week after week has been really clear and really simple. Jesus is better. Stick with him. You see, whatever alternate way of life to a life lived with Jesus that you can think of, whatever you can come up with in your mind, Jesus is better. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice. He is the one who's able to save. No one else can save us except Jesus. And so whatever temptation there might be to live for, to live for a career or to live for modern comforts, to give up on Jesus when life gets hard, remember to choose any of those alternate paths is to lose what is truly better, to lose what is truly real, because Jesus is the king. He does reign now. And has been, has been the constant warning in Hebrews, to give up on Jesus is to lose and to miss out on the new creation, which is eternally better. Jesus is better Stick with him. But let me finish just with verses 20 and 21. I'm just going to read them. Have a look at verses 20 and 21. And let me finish with these great words. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, with the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with all that is good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. Glory belongs to him forever and ever. Amen.